So I'll pass over to you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Just to say that I'm, um, I head up the environmental team, which is the sustainability team, and I work quite closely with the buying team that does a lot of the work in the supply chain with regenerative agriculture. And I've been quite involved in the beginning of the work, but I'm not necessarily the person that is always delivering the work. Simon, who's here, is one of the key people that helps to also measure the impact that we're having. So yeah, I think I wanted to, to start by saying that um, many, many years ago already, I think it was around 2009, 2010, we started to look at the potential of our supply chain to really do some uh, good work when it comes to the environment. And we started playing with you know, the, the concept of, we started with permaculture. So how can you apply a holistic design to a farm, for example, where we are working with communities and working with farmers, not just, oh, I'm gonna buy on this transactional kind of relationship, I'm gonna buy grain from you, but you know, what are all the ecosystem services together with the products that we can get from that piece of land? And we started to develop lots of partnerships. And then the word regeneration, I remember when the word regeneration landed. Like we didn't used to use that word. And then it landed in 2010, I think it was 2010, uh, with some partners from North America that we were working in. I said, oh, cool, there is a name for what we're doing. So now we can start using that name. And then the concept of regenerative agriculture became more and more popular. So I think at Lush, we are now, you know, there are projects that are 10, 11, 12 years old already. Um, and we have been able to uh, experiment and make lots of mistakes as well as to how we develop regenerative agriculture. So just to start by framing a little bit and, and picking up on what Ben was saying, um, we, we work with a, a professor from Oxford University, Cecil uh, Girardin, and they published a study last year that looked at all nature climate solutions. So if you look at all nature climate solutions together, what's the actual impact that they can have for less than $100 per ton of carbon of CO2 equivalent? And they found out that all of, all of the initiatives together would be able to, um, to contribute to about 10 gigatons of carbon, uh, of CO2. Half of it, though, is avoided emissions. And the other half is sequestration. So at Lush, like working, working with that data, we really set a priority that if we say that half of it is protection and avoided emissions, that is really priority. Like restoring for a place like UK is essential because there is nothing left or very little left to protect. But when we're talking about the tropics and the global south where I came from, come from, then protection, like really protecting um, high biodiversity and high carbon sinks is our priority. So that's our number one priority at Lush. How can we use our supply chain uh, to do, for me, one of the core drivers of uh, the economy right now, which is to provide alternatively, alternative livelihoods to destruction, right? So alternative livelihoods to poaching, to deforestation, um, and, and make sure that that's really embedded in the product and customers can engage with those products and know that those products are offering an alternative to environmental destruction. And the second priority is to transition into regenerative farming. 
So this is another um, a very important role that businesses need to have at the moment. Not just businesses, because this needs blended finance. We also need philanthropy behind this. We need government behind this. We need business behind this, which is how do we really fund transition from conventional into regenerative agriculture. And Lush has also played that role in, in the ecosystem. I think sometimes even more than we should have played. When we talk about learning, I think we funded everything. Like we funded the investment, we were the off-takers, we funded the social work. And I think we're in a space now where we need a collaboration of various, various different funding sources in blended capital options. I'll talk a little bit more about that as well. So yeah, those two priorities, protect and, and, um, and transition to regenerative agriculture. And then restoration for us comes last because there are already so many people talking about tree planting and ecosystem restoration, wetland restoration. And again, I cannot, that is super important, especially for global cooling. So once we peak emissions, we need, you know, as I always tell that story as well about the, the sad, story of colonization, but how that actually reduced global temperatures. And we just need to do the same, but without, you know, having to uh, kill off all indigenous peoples, <laughs> preferably. Um, yeah, so how have we been doing this? Uh, we mapped where our raw materials were coming from, and then we, of course, as every business, materials are coming from all over the world, and we decided to create what we call sourcing hubs. So people that were actively looking at opportunities in places that were both a source of materials, but also a source of our impact. So places that were close to you know, forests like South America and the Amazon, um, or important ecosystems like the Mediterranean. Also, Mediterranean is a, a source of very high biodiversity. Sumatra and Indonesia. So how can we have people actively looking into who to partner uh, in those places in order to supply materials for Lush in a regenerative way? And then we formed four sourcing hubs, and those sourcing hubs explored various different models. So sometimes we even own the farms. So for example, we own a couple of concessions in Peru. We own a really beautiful uh, regenerative jojoba oil farm in Arizona. We own agroforestry farms in Uganda, that's our North American part. In the UK, we're a bit like, ooh, this sounds like neocolonization, we're not gonna own land anywhere. And in the UK, the UK part of the business, we usually partner with uh, existing communities or existing projects. And then we also have incentives for farmers to improve their practices. So we're working with, for example, already established suppliers. How can we work with them so they are also changing their practices? Um, and we had one more type that I forgot. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and this uh, community ownership contract farming or this blended finance where we are, you know, playing with other, um, with other types of sources of funding to develop local projects. And uh, one thing that we always believed in and we're still doing this, and this came a lot from permaculture already in 2009, is investing demonstration farms. So even though regenerative agriculture is not uh, very hard, it's like no-till, leaving the roots in the soil, making sure you have cover cropping and you know, other, um, other things that we can do, often we are gonna see farmers that forgot, like this is how we used to farm before and that has been forgotten. 
And at the same time, how can we also bring new practices and new technologies? So investing in demonstration farms was always one, one of the leverage um, projects that we thought we could do as Lush. So we support, we fund the setting up of a demonstration farm and then that demonstration farm trains thousands of farmers in the region and then we can also help uh, by being off takers of what they're producing. Um, so that worked really well uh, and we now have, yeah, we have demonstration places in Ghana, we have demonstration places in Sumatra, there is a beautiful demonstration farm. And then, oh, I, it's, I have to like, man, otherwise I'm gonna spend uh, half an hour talking about this. So I need to like monitor how much I really want to talk about. And then I'll just maybe share some stories. Um, I think both of protection and regeneration. So of protection, uh, some very basic ones is where, like what are the highest biodiversity uh, places in the world. So we have Gola Forest in Sierra Leone, for example, or we have the Amazon in Brazil, or we have the Loses Plateau ecosystem in Sumatra. So in Sumatra, we set up a demonstration farm and a network of farmers that are growing patchouli in agroforestry systems so they don't have to go and take patchouli from the land. That's also an alternative livelihood to palm oil. So we're offering an alternative to deforesting for palm oil is using agroforestry for patchouli. And essential oils is a high value crop. So that's also really interesting about cosmetics, which is different from food. We have this really high value aromatics that we can use as cosmetics. In the Amazon, we have a partnership with the Kayapo indigenous community, and they harvest uh, non-timber forest product, which is, um, uh, palm seeds from a plant called tonka and the seed smells like a mix between cinnamon and vanilla. It's just an amazing smell and we use that in one of our best selling ranges. So we have been able to really support the community, the indigenous community that are protecting a territory that's five times the size of England. So that helps again income uh, in, as alternative to you know, uh, extracting for the, from the forest through deforestation. Um, in Sierra Leone, we have worked with a cocoa butter producer from the Netherlands on working again on the buffer zones, buffer zones super important, on the buffer zones of the Gola rainforest to restore old agroforestry cocoa plantations and then we buy uh, the cocoa butter that is produced by the producer in the Netherlands. Um, and a lot of that, and my friend here, uh, Sai, uh, also helps to measure, like, what's the impact of these things that we're doing? So moving to regenerative agriculture, so from um, uh, protection to agriculture, I'll also just share a few case studies. One that Sai was quite involved in measurement. We um, decided, to, we developed a packaging made from cork, and we partnered with a, an amazing project in, um, in Portugal that is both protecting and restoring soil and restoring the forest. They harvest the cork, and cork, you know, will grow, there is an eight to nine year cycle. We were able to measure how much carbon is stored in a kilo of, of cork. And we, um, we figured that a 33 gram of packaging, which encases our shampoo bars, is sequestering 1.2 kilos of CO2. 
Um, and the more, you know, the more we sell and the more we buy, the more we are sequestering CO2 in the landscape because that's being stored in the trees, in the soil, and um, yeah, and also there is a biodiversity impact in that project. So I think that's what we mean by regenerative agriculture. It's actually, um, if you have a food business or if you have a cosmetics business or if you're using uh, bio-based materials, those materials can actually be carbon negative. We can, re we can uh, reverse climate change at this point is a little bit <laughs> um, a dream, but we can really stay at 1.5 degrees of warming by using all of our agricultural chains to sequester carbon in the soil. It's 2.0 times more carbon in the soil than all, all the plants, all the animals, all the, bio the biosphere combined. It's in the soil. Um, and we know that actually the temperate soil in the temperate holds more carbon than, for example, tropical forest. Wetlands holds more carbon than tropical forest. Um, so, and and they, those are accessible to us here in Europe. Um, one more uh, transitioning to regenerative agriculture case that I wanted to share is with our cotton. So we have a policy that we only use organic cotton and we use organic cotton in canvas bags or you know, t-shirts, we make other lifestyle products uh, out of canvas bags. Even the aprons in our shops are made from regenerative cotton. And we worked with a supplier in India, they, they are an amazing supplier called Rewrap, and they put on a project to transition cotton farmers in the suicide belt of India. So they helped over a thousand farmers to transition from conventional cotton, which is horrific because it's all BT cotton, GM, high use of pesticide, high use of fertilizers, uh, really damaging to the water table, really damaging to the health, and it's called suicide belt because farmers get into a cycle of debt that many, over 300,000 farmers have committed suicide in India. Um, and working with those farmers on very small uh, initiatives. So one is how can we do what we call human scale water retention landscape. So making sure that we're holding water um, so it can be rain fed. Another is paying two years ahead for the cotton production. Because one of the tricky bits about transitioning from conventional to regenerative agriculture is that you have there two years where yields are gonna be lower and uh, you need to prop up farmers, and that's why blended capital is so important, and blended finance. Um, yeah, and then we are we guarantee to buy the cotton, so guaranteed off-takers, again, a key leverage point for transitioning uh, from conventional into regenerative agriculture. And we buy this beautiful cotton, we have guaranteed supply in a time when supply chains are all over the place, but these long-term relationships really help us also secure um, those products for the business. So it has immense <laughs> business benefits as well. I have another 30 of those stories to tell, but I think I'll stop here and maybe I'll just share some learnings. Um, one of them is definitely start with demonstration. The other thing that we, uh, we found is sometimes we were too eager to support a project to say, oh, we really want that raw material. Um, before really testing in the final product, before really you know, ensuring the quality. So at the end of the day, the product also has to work for what we need it to work. So we, we had a case that's like so sad. <laughs> I wanna cry when I hear the story. Um, we worked with a community to plant an elephant fence because elephants, uh, especially if they're hungry, they will go into communities and then they, they get 
uh, killed because they cause harm and damage in the community. So when we're talking about protecting biodiversity, this is also very big for Lush, as I said before. Uh, elephants don't like lemongrass, and we use lemongrass oil. So we're like, let's build a seven-kilometer lemongrass fence where the community can then make essential oil, lemongrass essential oil, not have the, the elephant problem, and sell the lemongrass oil to us. Come on, like, you can't take more SDGs than that, right? Like, SDG bingo, a project like that. Um, it was the wrong lemongrass. <laughs> and then we couldn't use lemongrass. So there are some stories like this where we weren't super thorough about the material and the quality that we were getting because we, you know, we really wanted to do it. Um, demonstration, as I said, and I think because we started this a little bit earlier, we, we, the, the, you know, we weren't talking about blended finance like we're talking now. Like there weren't so many mechanisms for financing stuff like this like they are now. There are not so many portfolios you know, of people really interested in, in impact investment. So I think we bankrolled this way too much. And, I, I, and now, at least in the fight, we're still doing this. Only now we're trying to hire someone to help us access you know, the, the whole financial ecosystem. So Lush can really be an off-taker and fund part of it. Like we invested many, 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 many millions of pounds, maybe 10 million, um, about 10 million, uh, Sai? Eight to 10 million, I'd say? Which bet? No, for Slush, for the Slush to set yeah. up those projects, yeah. yeah. Set it up with Source and Hubs as well. Yeah. And we probably could have funded a third of that if we had partnered uh, a little bit earlier. Um, so if anyone here is interested in, in yeah. Um, yeah, also interesting is um, diversity. So just, you know, a basic principle of nature is that diversity creates resilience. And it doesn't matter if it's diversity in the soil bacteria, diversity in the skin bacteria, or diversity, or farm diversity. So this idea of always looking at diversity of incomes for the farm is very good. And this for me is, is where payment for ecosystem services can pay, play a, a good role. I don't, think, I don't think we want farmers to only be, or communities to only be getting their livelihoods from payment for ecosystem services, but that as a top up is really excellent. So looking at you know, a basket of livelihoods for those communities on buffer zones of important habitats is key. Uh, for us as well, it's like we saw that with Tonka and the indigenous community, you, there is more risk in the supply chain sometimes because uh, like COVID really reduced their capacity to, to pro produce for us. So having uh, diversity in our supply chain and backup suppliers is super important. But at the same time, we also see resilience in long-term contracts because we're doing longer-term off-taking contracts. Um, another one that I wanted to talk about is the, oh yes. Uh, communities need a lot of support with logistics and getting the, I, I'm gonna use a word that I probably shouldn't, like how do you get them to be bankable investments or ba bankable um, projects, right? By helping with exports, licenses, logistics. So in our case, Lush also did that work but I'm sure there are other players in this ecosystem that can also uh, pick up this work. It's like, how do you make the market ready? Um, and this is, again, we had to learn it the hard, hard way, kind of doing it ourselves, but I also think that 
if we're talking about really transitioning and really the kind of shift that needs to do now, that are these functions in the ecosystem that people need to pick up. Um, and again, I think Lush, Lush did too many of those functions together. Yeah, and just learning. Like we visit, we have them visit us. We have this like really deep partnerships. We are making sure that we're never just looking at carbon, that there is always a biodiversity element involved and a community element involved. That we are now thinking how to, because we've done all of this without measuring, right? So our measuring team is like four years old. So we're now, you know, how do we add, how do we start measuring co-benefits? Like how do we measure biodiversity, right? How do we... Um, how do we bring more of that visibility into what we're doing? I think that's it. But, and, and also just to say, what's the alternative to, you know, like unless we really make our whole economy regenerative, we have no alternative. Like there is no plan B. So, so that's it. Like I think Lush has been pioneering in this, but eventually all businesses need to come into this same journey, like regenerative supply chains. This is how we... Ah, uh, yeah, how we can stay under one and a half degrees without seriously compromising our economy. Yeah. Thank you.